with me, I want to read to you our passage of the day. This is the word of the Lord, Matthew 5, 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And in James 5, 14 through 16, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And so God, thank you for this word that you have put on, on paper with pen and ink and that we get to actually see your word and your intention for all of your followers since this time uh, that these books were written until now. We pray, God, that you would help us and this church, Valley Church, to be one that honors the heart of your teaching, Jesus, and that uh, reflects how beautiful you are in a way that others would want it to. In your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Amen. Yes, so I've been uh, not able to come to Valley Church because it's a two-hour commute, as Michael said. doesn't be, get to be my home church, but I swear on the Bible, it's appropriate for this. If I lived here, I would go to Valley Church. Love what you guys are doing and love uh, the uh, stories that I get to hear. And then in anticipation of me even coming and uh, being able to be part of the teaching team, at times I... I uh, do a little bit of binge podcasting, <clears throat> and I wish I would say I'd keep up on every one of your sermons, Michael, but I listen to a bunch at once when I'm out doing work, and, uh, and, I, and I've loved it. I've really enjoyed it. Like, you guys have a great teacher in Michael and a great teacher in Maddie, too, and it's, it's actually really enjoyable to hear um, Michael and Maddie really uh, teach God's Word and I grow to love every point in the podcast, too, where I can hear their church heckler in Kevin Cruz coming alive, right? So we know it's like, when's his voice going to come on? Then it's, then it's there eventually, sometimes even prompted because of just what a popular demand it is. So that's great. Yeah, and I mean, I, uh, you know, have known Kevin since he was in high school, and so the, uh, I'm, I'm very used to that kind of heckling. Actually, you know, Kevin will tell you that most of the time during my sermons, he slept um, in high school. So, but he had a, no, he had a problem with sleep apnea. I don't know what, narcolepsy. So whatever it might've been, I'm glad to be here with you guys. And I brought my uh, wife, Crystal, and, and two out of three boys. My oldest is 16 and he's like got a real life and a job. So we left him back in sisters. And so uh, I want to, just share with you a little bit tonight um, from this passage, and it all, it, it, it came from this. Here's, here's the thought I had one day. One day, I, as, a, as a former recovering pastor, I remember sitting in a uh, church service, especially one time, and I remember the uh, pastor probably said something like, isn't this great? And uh, you know, he said, this is, this is great, and you got to bring your unbelieving friends to be a part of uh, this thing. And this is where I have to just tell you that I have made a commitment to Jesus that I will stop being cynical. Um, but I've asked him, and he said that I can go ahead and open just a little window into my uh, former cynical self that I uh, have uh, tried hard in the last year even to stop being. But I remember at the time when the pastor said, isn't this great? You got to bring all your unbelieving friends. My thoughts went something like this. I mean, even though there were some people that probably gave him some sort of affirming, yeah, I wasn't convinced that they meant it. And in fact, I couldn't say I was convinced, right? My thought was, I'm not sure this is what I would call great. Like I've been a part of a lot of church, right? A lot of Sundays. I did it professionally for a lot of times. This church, I told you, is great. I'm talking about the other ones. And uh, 
But I, would, I was there sitting with a bunch of people, about half of them I wasn't even sure if I liked. And you can't say that when you are a pastor, you know. But then once you quit, you can. So I would just tell you that I wasn't even sure if, if I liked. I just got done talking with this guy uh, right before church started who told me about how Ronald Reagan was the last great president that ever existed. And he just talked with the assumption that everyone there in that church had shared his same political views. And uh, I, I uh, was just there thinking this through as a bunch of people are sitting in this room singing strange songs to various degrees of musical talent. And I don't even think I could say that I really even liked it there. And I was a pastor. And I'm sure not convinced that if I was going to bring someone and introduce them to Jesus, that that would be my idea of the best place to do so. And I've had those kinds of moments, and I don't know if you've had any of those as well, um, where you just think like, man, it, it, are, are we missing something? Is this really what it means to be a Christ-following community of people really seeking after Jesus? So many times for me as a pastor, I've thought questions like this through, and I've been a part of endeavors like this where we tried so hard to do different things even, to bring people that are far from Jesus to find the longing of their soul. But I'm convinced that I did so in so many different ways that were just <laughs> um, other than what Jesus would want. I mean, I'm not saying like we didn't do some great things. Like if you're old school, you know, I'll bring you back to the day where we launched a car that I bought with church money through the air in the church parking lot. And the guy that drove it crashed into these other cars. And uh, we did it for this outreach thing for high school students. And the guy got out of the car after just launching through the air in the church parking lot. Not something you see every day in the church parking lot, right? And crashes. He gets out of the car. And because uh, I you know, didn't offer him all that much money, he didn't have the best like helmet so his face got cut open from the face shield that split right down the middle he's got blood all over his nose and he's like yeah and we we're like yeah and those days were awesome I'm not gonna deny that right those were good times but I'm not convinced that those times really did anything to make known the beautiful name of Jesus to anybody <laughs> even though they were great, right? <laughs> and so for me, friends, I've had a personal desire over these last seasons in my own life to really reform in me what following and representing Jesus might look like, like the way he intended his followers to represent him in his life and in his teaching. One of those that I want to look at tonight that I'm convinced is a powerful way to really represent the beautiful Jesus that we get to know is this relational idea of confession. And so that's where I want to go with you tonight is this idea of relational confession. That's where we're going. You tracking? So listen, there's this uh, idea of confession that we might think of right away when you think of confession. It's the idea of a vertical confession, right? It's the first John 1, 9, we confess our sins. He's faithful and just, will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's, uh, Lord, I'm sorry for my sins, and, and that's a vertical confession. But also in Scripture, that uh, if, if you caught those verses that I read in Matthew 5 and James 5, there is this idea of horizontal confession. Kevin, don't start yawning already. Uh, and so this is confession one to another. And this is the kind I want to talk about. It's one of these distinctly Christian practices of old, this idea of confession one to another. In fact, there's this old writing called the Didache written in 70 AD. And the description of the uh, church gathering was this, get this, assemble on the Lord's day and break bread and offer the Eucharist, but first make confessions of your faults so that your sacrifice may be a pure one. Anyone who has a difference with this fellow is not to take part with you until he has been reconciled so as to avoid any pro profanation of your sacrifice. 
And so you see, even in the early church, there was this practice of confession one to another. And so when's the last time we did it? Or you did it here? There's a uh, classic book by a guy named Francis Schaeffer called The Mark of a Christian. And he brings out that in Scripture, there are really two ways that uh, Jesus gives the world permission to look at us and decide what kind of followers we are of Jesus and what kind of God he is. Two ways in Scripture. Can you think of what they are? Two times where Jesus says something like, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love, right? Love one another. So that's one of them in John 13, right? Um, love one another as I have loved you. By this, all men will know you're my disciples if you love one another. The second one, does anyone know what it is? In John 17, the high priestly prayer, right? Jesus prays not only for himself and for his disciples, but for all believers right before he goes to the cross. And his prayer is, I'm, I'm not asking on behalf of the disciples alone, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their message. This is us. And his prayer for us and all believers is that all of them may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, so they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. There it is again, right? World's permission to look and see. No, Jesus is legit because of how followers of Jesus were one and loved another. And so uh, there's these two passages that really share, I think, the heart of God when we come to read passages like the ones I'd read at the very beginning, this Matthew 5 idea where it says that, uh, again, I'll read it. If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. This tells us that uh, according to Jesus, what God wants more than our worship maybe an equivalent of today, more than our song, as we come together and sing, what he wants more than that is actually our relational oneness, a love for one another, uh, a reconciliation, a forgiveness, a kind of bond with other believers that uh, requires us to do some real, mature, relational work in confession when it means it. I can remember uh, way back in the day, for those of you, I got you know, to give a couple of good classics because another one that uh, so many of you guys went on uh, when we're a part of the, our uh, short-term missions to Modesto. I remember you know, uh, al almost all these old school dudes that were a part of the youth group back in the day went. And we had some great times in Modesto. There was one year that was an exception to the great times. And I remember uh, leading this group of high schoolers down there. I think they were sophomores or juniors. I mean, we went down to Modesto and we're trying to do these short-term acts of service and give students a chance to really represent Jesus. But my team were just so drama-filled that it was like terrible. The, like most of the whole week was, uh, you know, one bickering after the next and students really at each other and uh, not really doing well in so many ways. And I was like a, really a young leader too and, uh, and, and didn't have uh, a lot of relational maturity myself to even know how to navigate some of those things. And so I just remember this being like my worst year of uh, Modesto. It might have been the same year too as where these dudes were up in the uh, little loft area and they were uh, sh just sniping people with airsoft guns for hours and we couldn't get them to stop. And uh, it might have been the, the year too where uh, the uh, leadership decided it would be a really good idea to wash uh, the guy's feet literally. And I was like, that's a bad idea. And anyways, the, uh, the uh, thing that happened though was <laughs> we got to this one evening time where all the team was together and we uh, typically in the evening would um, have some time where we worship God in song and then we hear uh, reflections on the day. But I, I remember in that moment where I thought, you know, I thought of this passage in Matthew 5 and I thought the, 
this, we don't need to sing to God our songs when uh, we're constantly fighting outside of this worship time. So I, it was one of my proud young youth pastor moments. It's a little bit of a power play, but I just said, listen, we're not gonna sing a single song tonight. Instead, you guys go and pray about two things. Think about two things. Journal about who you hurt that you need to apologize to and her, who hurt you that you need to go to and tell them how uh, they hurt you. And so we just ended the night and it was like, it felt good, you know, for me. I don't know if it helped, but it, it felt good. The point of it being, it's just what I said though, that this is uh, important to Jesus. Leave your gift at the altar and first and go be reconciled with your brother and then come back. God wants a reconciliation more than he wants a song or a gift. And so then in uh, James 4, sorry, James 5, verse 14, I read it to you as well, but look at what, if we get down to 16, it says, therefore confess your sins to who? One another and pray for one another that you may be what? Healed. Can we ask the question of what does that mean? How is it that we could confess our sins to one another and then find healing in doing so? How does healing come through confession? Like what wound is being healed? There are all kinds of ideas on this that you can read about, but the one I want to propose to you tonight for you to consider is that I believe this passage, um, the heart of it, is referring to relational sin. In other words, wounds that we have caused one to another and the potential for repairing these ruptured relationships is actually through confessing one to another confess your sins so the way that I've wronged you so that you may help me be healed. I'll just pause because I want you to think about what that would mean if we read these passages. Maybe, hopefully, it's something that's new for you to consider with me. It's been newer for me lately. And so I just want to throw out three areas to you that this kind of one another confession um, is, uh, is, uh, is powerful. I'm going to give you three ways that I've seen this be powerful. We can just ask the question, though, have you done this? Have you actually taken Jesus' words to heart in a way that you have thought, no, I need to go to that person and we need to work it out because I want to honor Jesus in the way that he says to be reconciled with one another. There's three ways that this one another confession is powerful. And the first one is this, that confession elevates relationships in the way that Jesus does. And I really believe that. See, what usually happens, um, and you can tell me if this is a pattern for you or just others you know, right? what usually happens is that we go to a church, we get involved, we get hurt, we leave the church, and then we rinse and we repeat. How many of you would say that's happened to you? You're lying. How many of you would be like me and say it's actually, yeah, that's, I felt that. We go to church, we uh, get wronged, we get hurt, and then if we are like many, we leave, or at least we uh, walk around wounded. And friends, when that happens, let's just agree that left at that, the enemy wins. When Jesus prays for all believers that we would be one and we are a party to a lack of oneness, Jesus doesn't win. The enemy wins, right? Confession one to another, it requires us to navigate the relational complexities that exist whenever we venture to live with others, right? Like community would be really easy if it weren't for all the stupid people we have to do it with, right? You see how it's funny because it's true? We <laughs> see that 
so, so big picture when it comes to uh, relational oneness, there's three um, phases, we'd say, that uh, I want to just frame for you so we can make sure you're tracking with me. The first phase of this relational oneness and this reconciliation is, is actually the phase that we just might call forgiveness. And forgiveness is a one-party endeavor. So just think of it that way. There's times when I have uh, stewed about something that someone else did to me, and I realize, like you've heard, hopefully, enough to be aware of the enemy's schemes, that Satan would love nothing more for that to be something that becomes in you a source of bitterness and eventually of utter hatred for, desire to do harm because of unforgiveness in your heart. It's drinking poison and what? hoping the other person dies, right? That's, that's what happens when we have unforgiveness. And so the first phase of this, uh, when someone's been wrong relationally, is that before God, a one-party endeavor is where we say, I ask your help, Jesus, to forgive. Because you want to be free from reliving that trauma over and over again whenever you think of the person. Um, because they don't even know you're thinking about it, right? They don't even know, for all we know, that you're even hurt. And the enemy would love to use that in our hearts to make us actually be a, a person with a character that doesn't model Jesus, but is wounded and uh, living in that spot of unforgiveness. So that's the first uh, piece of it. The second is uh, if, if, the, if forgiveness is a one-person endeavor, a one-party endeavor, then the next one would be reconciliation. And this is a two-party endeavor. It takes two, baby. When uh, you've asked that God would help to uh, remove that bitterness and to uh, remove the offense from being able to affect you, then the next step would be uh, with, a, with a, especially in, in this case with a believer, you go to them and you actually have a, chance at that point to reconcile the relational hurt. Um, forgiveness, you know, might be something where you say, I'm not going to let that affect my relationship with God. Reconciliation seeks to mend the ruptured relationship between someone else. And so re reconciliation is a two-party endeavor. The third step, by the way, is uh, that actually that would be hopefully a restoration, which doesn't always happen. But restoration, fully restored, is that you can actually trust the person in a way that you did before you were wounded. And that only comes if reconciliation <laughs> goes really well. And so uh, the way I've seen this look in a way that's just been beautiful, friends, is there's a lady in my church that uh, had students in my high school ministry in Sisters. And this family... Um, is uh, up there among the top families that I have seen be utterly hurt, actually destroyed um, by uh, sin. The situation happened before I even got there, but uh, when I was there, there were students, middle schoolers in my youth ministry who were living with the broken pieces of this fractured family because the dad had sexually molested one of the other siblings in their family. And eventually that uh, came out into the light and authorities were involved and the, uh, the kid, the, uh, one of his kids that he had molested, the different authorities said it would be best if you could actually testify against your dad. And because of all this different pieces of brokenness that only we could imagine if we put ourselves in their shoes, this boy was torn with this dysfunctional relationship. And so he confessed, and then shortly after, he killed himself. And so this family is just totally broken in pieces and uh, as I was there and getting to know um, some of the other siblings in the family I got to connect with one and through that got to connect with the mom and the mom um, is in, in a, just a really strange spot and and as we talked she told me what what happened is that she uh, clearly is 
we'll, we'll never put her heart back together again, right? With the kind of hurt that she's um, been subjected to, with the heartbreak that she has. But then there was a time in the middle of it where she felt like a pastor told her that what she was doing was wrong to a certain extent. Um, and so she, through tears, told me, what do I do? I don't have my husband anymore. He's 12 years in prison. I don't have my kids anymore. And now I don't even have my church. I'm not welcome there. What a, what a heartbreaking situation, right? And through talking with her a little bit and interacting with her, I, I um, told her that I think the right step would be that you give this other pastor a chance to make it right. And this woman being so brave in ways that I can only imagine uh, decided she would, in the midst of her deep hurt, be willing to sit down with the other pastor. And so I got to sit there and be part of it because I kind of uh, helped, helped this one kind of come together and I just got to kind of spin the conversation and, and let them talk. And through the course of that conversation, this lady shared her hurt and this pastor put himself in her shoes and felt her hurt with her. And the tears that flew in that room <laughs> by the woman, by the pastor, and by me <laughs> were amazing because they were tears of healing. And that moment was the change for this woman being isolated and all of her hurt too. She decided she could finally start coming back to church. And to this day, she's deeply involved in the local church and actually writes some of the sermon notes and Bible curriculum. <laughs> and God's using her in a powerful way. And it happened because uh, this lady in this case was not only willing to go to the step of God help me forgive them, but the step of God, can you help us be reconciled? It was a beautiful thing where this pastor and this lady both got to experience God's healing touch. Isn't that cool? And so, like I said, confession elevates relationships the way Jesus does. And it's beautiful. And so we asked, I should ask just practically for you. Are you aware of somebody that you have hurt or that's hurt you? Would you be willing to actually spend some time asking Jesus, Lord, what might you have me do? We'll just start there. I'm not telling you what to do. Can you ask Jesus? Because when you start to ask those kinds of questions, I think you elevate relational connectedness that Jesus deeply desires for his people. Secondly, confession is powerful because it calls sin for what it is. And what is sin? It's wrong. When we do this, we actually validate those we have hurt. And when we validate, there's a sense in which you can actually right the wrong. And I've seen this happen to me personally uh, with Crystal, my beloved wife, right? <laughs> By the way, the people that you're around the most in life, your spouse, your siblings, your parents are the ones that are going to hurt you the most too. It's just um, a uh, probability for time. They're going to deeply wound us. And what will we do in those moments? And so Crystal and I um, years ago went to this weekend to remember. Anyone ever been to that? It's a it's a, a marriage retreat, and, and we were living in Salem at the time, and we went to beautiful Sun River, which is my neighbor now. I live in Sisters, right? And uh, it's, by the way, totally sunny there today. Um, we, moved, we came here for you guys, and it was raining. And so uh, the, uh, we went to Sisters, and we're like, oh, great. And, and they worked us through some of the curriculum, you know, uh, we're hearing the teaching, and they gave us an assignment. And the assignment was... Um, for us to uh, write a love letter to our spouse. And uh, it sounds like a great assignment, right? And we sat down at this uh, coffee shop and started to write this letter to each other. And, and the problem was that I was in a weird spot where I'd been harboring some hurt that I had towards Crystal. It's kind of weird, and you can, you know, 
Call me a wimp if you want. Um, you would wonder, what, did, what could Crystal ever do, right? Like she's perfect. But what she did is that <laughs> we were uh, in, in the spot in life where we were making decisions about our family and how many would be a part of the vote family. And we got to three and we prayed every time, Lord, help this baby be a girl. And we just wanted one. Like, I still like my boys, but we just wanted one girl, right? And so on the third kid, I had my five-year-old praying at night with me. God, help the baby be a girl. And so then God gave us a third boy. And uh, there we were with three boys. And uh, it's funny. We've had um, some of our friends, even the sisters, say that when we moved, this is the context, when we moved as sisters and they uh, brought us up on to uh, Sunday morning and uh, were kind of commissioning us, you know, as the new pastors of the church. Um, they brought us up there and, and one of our friends said, she's like, the first time I saw Crystal, my thought on that Sunday morning, she's like, I think she needs a drink. And so uh, that's kind of the context of what it's like to have three little boys, you know, uh, under, what were they, under eight when they moved. And so we're in that spot, right? And I was like, Crystal, I think this next one's going to be a girl, number four, right? And I tried all the things, right? Tried all the things that you could think of, you know, where I said, I mean, <laughs> I wasn't, sometimes I was joking and uh a little bit manipulative, you know, but I'd say things like four is a new three, right? Other times I actually would say, honey, I, I really almost would go so far as to say, I think the Lord wants us to have another. And uh, so then other times, you know, I would re- replace uh, some of her medicine with some candy. No, just kidding. I didn't go that far to replace the birth control with little Skittles or something. But uh, we, uh, we went, <laughs> went down that road. But bottom line is Crystal said, I can't handle another kid. Oh, I'm already going a little wacky and I'll lose it. And so after months, I gave up and decided, well, it's not going to happen. And the problem was, friends, that it actually put this spot in my heart where I had some bitterness towards my own wife. And so we get down to this great marriage retreat where we're going to write a love letter. And all I could think of is, like, I can't keep harboring this bitterness in my heart. And so my love letter started out like, I'm really sorry that I even have to write this, but I'm hurting. And I went and and it was deep hurt that I went to describe in this letter. <laughs> so great love letter, right? And friends, I gave Crystal this love letter and she said um, that uh, she had been doing this uh, one Bible study called The Healing Journey. And in there was a time where you're supposed to really reflect long and hard about who is someone that you've wronged that you might need to go to and ask for forgiveness. And she said she prayed that prayer to Jesus and the only thing that came to mind was me. It was about how she <laughs> didn't necessarily need to say, yes, I'll have another kid, by the way. But, but how, how she just felt like she didn't hear my heart in, in the ways that she wished she would have. And so she told me those things that God put me on her heart when she asked God, who have I wronged I need to talk to and friends, I was driving down the road at the time, somewhere around Sun River and Lapine. We were going for a drive, and I had to pull over <laughs> because the tears were flowing so strong that I couldn't hardly see the road well. And, and what was amazing, what, what I'd never experienced in this way until that moment, were, uh, what was the power of validation, of true empathy, because um, I actually, at that moment, looked to try to find that hurt that I felt in my heart and it was gone because when she confessed what she did to me, it told me that God saw my hurt and he did something about it. That validation is powerful, friends. And so practically, let me put this to you this way. It's changed the way that uh, Crystal and I have conversations. It's changed the way that our family does things because here's typically what happens in a family. If you have kids, you get to a spot where one of the kids hurts the other person. And uh, so, you know, you, uh, one of your kids hits the other kid with a toy. And uh, what do you say as a parent? You say, Johnny, say sorry for hitting your brother with a toy. And so what does Johnny say? 
sorry, right? Real heartfelt tenderness, real just, you know, I mean, the spirit at work in my sarcasm. The, uh, yeah, it's an obligated sorry. And what does it mean? Nothing. Yeah, absolutely nothing, right? Johnny is like, I'm sorry I didn't hit you harder, right? Um, and so uh, then what does uh, little Timmy have to say in response? Johnny said, sorry. Timmy, what do you say? I forgive you, right? And then we're back to a happy family. Except for we got to do better <laughs> because uh, there was uh, some pieces missing. Because those are powerful concepts, right? And so let me propose to you that it would look a little different and it would look like this. The first piece uh, where it has to start is actually with confession, where uh, we go to the person and we don't say sorry, right? But we use this powerful, powerful phrase that starts out like this. It was wrong of me. When I do that, even in my own heart, it changes something. It causes me to have to have some real ownership of the wrongdoing that I committed because I have to tell my own heart with my own words that what I did was wrong. And so uh, the first step is that we actually, in confession, should say it was wrong of me to dot, dot, dot. Right. And so this is you, you. Hopefully you're memorizing this and you're going to write this down because if you uh, uh, well, hopefully you'll do it tonight. But you're going to need this. It changes the whole dynamics of family, too, because uh, it's powerful with our kids. Right. We don't tell our boys to ob obligatorily say, I'm sorry. We say, what did you do? That was wrong. And they say it was wrong of me to hit you in the head. Um, and so that's the first step, is the step of confession. The next, um, actually, the response, just so you know, is this. Not, I forgive you, but I receive your confession. This is big boy and girl, mature, relational um, interaction. I wronged you when I did this. You actually own your fault. And the response is, by the way, not, I have to forgive you right here and now because you just, you know, apologized to some extent. You admitted you're wrong. Which, by the way, have you ever been in that spot where someone says, I'm sorry, and in your heart you're like, yeah, thank you. I need some time, but I feel like what I should say is I'm obligated to say I forgive you. So you do, but you don't really mean it. <laughs> so this is, this is good tools that can be very helpful. The... Uh, Confession is the first step. I wronged you. But then the response is, I receive your confession. And then uh, once we've done that, then there's, this, there's an intermediate step that we really, um, if we're actually seeking to honor Jesus in this relational maturity that we should say, and this is that, it's a step of compassion, right? How about this for a follow-up? I wronged you when I did this. I receive your confession. Thank you. And then my follow-up question is, would you be willing to trust me enough to share how what I did hurt you so that I could put myself in your shoes and feel the way I'm, you felt? And if we get to levels like that, heart levels in our conversation, then... Uh, it gives God an opportunity to really work because then his heart of compassion comes in to where I can actually feel like, oh no, no wonder, no wonder they are hurt. Uh, I have had a lot of times too where I've just struggled with, I don't know what I should even confess, but I know I sure made them mad, right? <laughs> and uh and so sometimes you just got to start with, it was wrong of me to hurt you. Can you tell me more? And usually when I get to the point where I've asked, can you tell me, can you trust me to tell me how what I did made you feel? Ah, then the lights come on and I can own my stuff. See, the outcome of that step of compassion is that of validation. 
Listen, people, we believe that the God of justice is at work to right wrongs in our world. And I'm just convinced that uh, when we take a step like this, that we can partner with the God of justice and be a people who are willing to call the wrong wrong. And in doing so, the other person doesn't feel crazy for feeling so hurt and not knowing if they have a reason to. And so, confession is powerful, not only because it elevates relationship the way Jesus does, but confession calls sin for what it is wrong. And there's a practical way that we can do it too. And then the third and the last thing is this, that confession gives us a way to live out the gospel. It's a way we can live out the gospel. It's, that's beautiful for the world to see. Like, check this out. We actually, if we practice confession, we have a paradigm that says, I need forgiveness. And I need a way to process hurt, bitterness, and to heal. Because let's face it, friends, this is the same now as it was in Bible times, right? When someone cuts us, we want justice. When someone hurts us, we want something in return. Left alone, right? When someone wrongs us, we want revenge. An eye for an eye, Jesus says, and he talks further about it, right? The bottom line is we, someone cuts us and we want to make them bleed too. Who's going to bleed? And we know that Jesus did. He bled for us. And there can be forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration because of Jesus. And I have not got this right so many times. I remember once as a young guy that my boss at the time says, hey, is it hard for you to admit when you're wrong? And of course, my response was no, right? Ironically, I proved his point in my response. For so long for me, I just think that uh, my doings were so tied up in who I was that to admit wrong was to somehow acknowledge a lack of worth and value in myself. And it was just proof that I didn't understand the gospel, right? But if we do... Well, like Paul Tripp says in his book, A Dangerous Calling, he says, you do not have to defend, rationalize, or excuse that which grace has already forgiven. Isn't that powerful and freeing if we'll embrace it? You do not have to defend, rationalize, or excuse that which grace has already forgiven. And I just think this is so true in all areas of life. In fact, there's, this, there's, a, there's a trend that I think I've seen quite a bit um, from uh, adults that are followers of Jesus, where the trend is that one day these adults decide, my parents have caused me hurt. Um, by the way, the people that you're around most, that love you most, that are with you most, are going to cause you hurt, right? And so the, uh, the, the problem is their response. Um, it's almost like the, the kid that's an adult that's following Jesus didn't actually grow up in the way they're related to the parent because the response so often in this trend I'm speaking of is that the kid says, I'm going to cut off relationship with my parents because they wronged me. And I'm taking a 20,000 foot view, right? I don't know what the wrongs were uh, all the time. I don't know uh, if you're in this spot even where you're feeling hurt by parents or anyone that uh, has been in your life, in no way am I saying that your hurt is um, less than hurt. <laughs> I'm sure it is a powerful force that has caused real pain. But what I just want you to know is that Jesus is the source of healing. And the forgiveness of Jesus relationally to help this one to another confession really work to heal is, is real. It's able to do something about your situation. And I can't help but think about the trend when um, kids, grown kids, unfriend their parents and say, I'm not going to talk with you anymore. Um, I can't help but think, but how are they going to be healed? 
They won't come any other way, friends, than through Jesus. And so uh, Ephesians 4, 32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. It's because of Jesus' forgiveness to us when I realize, oh, I have wronged you, Jesus, so many times and in so many ways. That is the motivation for me to work this forgiveness and reconciliation out with others. And so I just want you to know, man, this, this stuff is so simple when I throw it out here up front, but it's so hard, right? Like I talked with a guy recently where he's been hurt so deeply that I'm still mad because of the way that he was hurt by other believers. <laughs> and I asked him, like, what do you do with this hurt? Are there ever times when you get, you know, mad about it? And, and he talked about his struggles with me and, and he said, um, what, what do you think, you know? And we just talked about how isn't it interesting that the teaching of Jesus, and this is so simple on one level, right? But so absolutely hard to do. <laughs> like, I have a, a friend of mine that I've known for a long time, loved him dearly, um, have had so many seasons of life with him, and then recently, a, a year or so ago, um, something happened where I felt deeply wounded by him, and he's another brother in the Lord, right? And, and uh, so because I'm up here and uh, have, uh, you know, been a, a pastor in the past, I want you to know that I went to him the very next day, except for I just lied completely. It took me, you want to guess how many days? It took me 10 months before it came upon me, oh, I should probably do something about the hurt that I feel because of this guy. It, man, the enemy has such a way of just making this thing muddled in my head to where I wouldn't do anything with it except for harbor it and allow it to poison me. And so I uh, finally got to the point where I was like, oh, <laughs> I actually should sit down and talk with the guy. And uh, this is a totally busy guy, right? Never have any time for me. Um, and I texted him to s just to see, you want to have lunch today? And he said, sure. And it was like, oh, dang it, Lord. I think you're definitely a part of this <laughs> at this point. And so we sat down and talked, and I was able to walk through these steps and ask him, can you tell me about how I might have wronged you so I could have a chance to apologize? And he said, I'll tell you, and I want you to do the same for me. How have I wronged you? And in those moments, friends, God wins <laughs> because we confess one to another and let the gospel actually cover us. And so as I uh, close, I just want to ask you guys a question. Who do you need to go with? Oh, sorry, to go to <laughs> with your hurt. So that Jesus could win so that there could be a chance for forgiveness and reconciliation to happen. Who has hurt you that you need to go to and tell? And on the other end, who might you have hurt that you need to prayerfully consider initiating a conversation with so that Jesus could win? There was a small group leader in my youth ministry a couple years ago and youth group ended and I thought it was a really good night and three high school girls stormed out of the small group um, with this leader and came to me and said we're never coming back here again and that really burst my bubble and I was like whoa what happened and they had a conversation in small group with this leader who decided to make a non-issue an issue and these girls were so offended by it, they said, we're never coming back. And that's not what I wanted, not what I wanted to see at all. And so I uh, started a, a number of different initiated conversations to hope that uh, there could be reconciliation and, and uh, as 
statement of forgiveness or a confession at least. And I talked with this leader for literally hours on the phone. I talked with the leader and her husband. I talked with the girls at their school in an official kind of a meeting. I talked with the girls and their parents. And I spent hours, you know, trying to help this thing go the right way. And I remember just asking the, the leader, no matter what you thought, leader, <laughs> about how you were standing up for truth and standing up for what was right, did you want the outcome to be that now these girls want nothing to do with church and even Jesus? And friends, all I can say is that, sadly, that leader really never owned the relational hurt she caused. And these three girls, to this day, now are grown women. And as far as I can tell and have heard, don't want anything to do with church or Jesus. And I got to leave you with a story like that so it would burn <laughs> to the point that you might be willing to do something and honor Jesus in the way you would go and confess one to another. Jesus, heavy, simple, profound teaching you gave us. But one I'm convinced because of my own experience and seeing how powerful it is when I do it and I've had it done to me, when I'm convinced, Lord Jesus, if we were to follow you in this way, we would make you more beautiful than any car launching through the air in a church parking lot, any others seeking um, attempt at trying to bring people to you. Lord, these are some of the ways that you want your people to live in such a way that all men would know that we are your disciples. And so we pray, God, that you would give strength and boldness and a tenderness to each person here tonight, that we would, in fact, represent you in a way, Jesus, where we could say, Jesus is beautiful, but others would look and say, yeah, I agree. I want to be a part of that. In your name, amen.